Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. One word simply won't do. She was a daughter, an actress, a wife, a wife, a wife, a wife, a wife-wife, a wife, a wife, a jewelry collector, a mom, an activist, an entrepreneur, and an icon. She was Elizabeth Taylor. The end. Let's talk about Elizabeth Taylor. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1944, in addition to most events of the year happening as a result of World War II, Captain America became the first Marvel comic character to appear in a movie. Bing Crosby recorded Swinging on a Star, which would win an Academy Award for Best Original Song. And Meet Me in St. Louis, starring Judy Garland, premiered. Astrid Lindgren began writing Pippi Longstocking. The United Negro College Fund, now known as simply UNCF, was founded. A fire broke out in a circus tent at the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus in Hartford, Connecticut. Of the estimated 7,000 people inside, 168 of them died. The Red Cross was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Franklin D. Roosevelt was elected to an unprecedented fourth term as president, a term he would only serve for two and a half months before his death. Patti LaBelle, Joe Cocker, Diana Ross, Rick Ocasek, Jimmy Page, Alice Walker, George Lucas, Michael Douglas, Danny DeVito, and Rudy Giuliani were all born. And in 1944, Elizabeth Taylor's third movie, National Velvet, propelled her to international fame. Elizabeth Rosamond Taylor was born on February 27, 1932, in London, the second child of Frances Taylor and Sarah Southern. Papa had been born in Springfield, Illinois, but the family moved to Arkansas City, Kansas, not Arkansas City, um, <laughs> said as written. As a matter of fact, as someone who lived in its neighbor, Wichita, Kansas, a lot of people say Ark City. I'm always fascinated that it's not on the border of Arkansas, but it's on the border of Oklahoma. Well, and you know, Kansas City is in Missouri. Cairo's not Cairo, also in Missouri. I don't know what's going on around here. But despite its name and confusing location, Papa grew up in this bustling town just full of potential. And his aunt had married a man who sort of accidentally got into the art business by way of big oil. This uncle had once got artists to paint portraits of prominent people, and he would show up at their door offering the pictures for $2,000. So number one, super enterprising. And number two, surprisingly similar to our last subject, Edmonia Lewis, <laughs> in that regard. Hmm. Yeah. Well, by 18, this is his name was Howard Young. He was worth over $13 million, but he lost it all in the panic of 1896, only to make it back up. He's one of those bouncy guys, you know, lose it all, make it all. We had another one of those. Remember when we talked about um, Winston Churchill's mother, Jenny Jerome, and how her mm -hmm. papa was like, I have nothing. I have nine billion dollars. Oh. Right. <laughs> anyway, this relative who was now richer than Croesus, this well-connected relative, brought his nephew, Elizabeth's papa, into the art business. And papa hobbed and nobbed, etc., with high society in all of the art world in New York City, where he made a living running an art gallery. As for Mama Sarah, her maiden name was Sarah Viola Warmbrot. It means, means warm bread, which couldn't be <laughs> more wholesome. Like you're picturing apple-cheeked, apron-wearing maiden with a crown braid. <laughs> well, that's not what we have here at all. Uh, Sarah also was from Arkansas City, and she did not have a warm bread making mother. She had a mother who had wanted to become a performer. She sang and she played the violin and the piano. And she encouraged Sarah to follow that same life and gave her approval to drop out of high school to study acting here in our city of Kansas City. Here's a sobering fact and possibly the reason, Miss Susan, that the mama encouraged her daughter so I am sorry to say that Sarah's parents had four sons in addition to their daughter and not 
one of them survived their first birthday. So Sarah, while one of five children, was actually raised as an only child. And I can only imagine after so much loss, and you really do have to put all your eggs in one basket, but you kind of realize how fragile life is and how much you kind of have to grasp things, you know? That's just my theory. Mm -hmm. But that tragedy was sort of hidden. Mm. Well, that puts an even more emphasis on the fact that Mama let her go off to school, drop out of high school in Arkansas City, and go to study acting in Kansas City at the Horner Redpath School. Where she had gone to school is actually now part of the University of Missouri, Kansas City. It's the same school. It's still there. But at the it's time... It's right by my house. Where that's is it? It is right I know. It's in the school. It's the Kansas City Conservatory at the UMKC. <gasps> All right. Maybe I'll walk over there. Maybe you should. Is that where the orchestra is? I mean, honestly, my friend and I were just walking through there and we noticed a building that seemed very classic. Like it was probably the OG building. And it now has all this tuning sounds coming out of it. So I'm wondering if it's, um, you know, where the orchestra is. Sounds like a conservatory. It's probably a conservatory. That's amazing. But at the time, it was a school that was part of the Chautauqua movement. This was um, kind of an entertainment offshoot of the Lyceum movement. I think we talked about this maybe in Jane Addams. I know we talked about it in Lowy Fuller. It was a very progressive group of people that had community classes. And this was the entertainment offshoot. In the Lyceum movement, they'd have speakers that held classes in science or politics, societal issues, and entertainment. As a matter of fact, one time, even a blend, P.T. Barnum gave lectures on temperance as part of the Lyceum movement. And he would give lectures at one and then move to another city and give lectures there, too. After Sarah finished her classes, she entered the Chautauqua Entertainment Circuit. What she would be doing would be traveling with her troupe from one city to another, performing plays. And this is when she adopted the stage name of Sarah Southern, which I understand why she got rid of her old name. It does have kind of a regional feel, but it was actually her mother's maiden name. Okay, so, but from an early age, I mean, I recognize this girl. This was a Louise Brooks type of situation. If you grew up in a small town, you can look around, I mean, as early as middle school, and you know who's going to piece out of there, like Mm -hmm. ASAP. She was definitely that girl. She became quite the mainstay of regional theater and began appearing in shows from L.A. to New York, culminating in, ta-da! Broadway, baby, the year she turned 30. I'm sorry, I was giving musical accompaniment. <laughs> oh, yes. What song was that? I don't know. Just da 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 da. Oh. <laughs> Whatever that is, I, I, I have no idea. <laughs> well, Mama had a string of plays on Broadway, four in all, which is ultimately her Lifetime Achievement Award in the theater. At some point during her stint, On the top of her career mountain, she reconnected with a boy from Ark City. Why, Frank Taylor, I do declare. (laughs) (laughs) How funny to find you here in New York City. Oh, my gosh. I'm reading this book again, rereading this book by Maeve Benchy. It's called Light a Penny Candle. And one of the characters leaves to go be a nurse. And while she's away, she meets a boy who literally lives outside of their small Irish village back home. And the younger sister was a and determined that from now on, the very first question she's going to ask any man she meets anywhere in the world, are you from Kilgarrett? Have you ever heard of Kilgarrett? And if so, (laughs) not talking to you anymore. (laughs) I'm going to run away in the opposite direction. But that is not what Mama and Papa did. By this point, Frank was well-traveled. He was polished. He was quiet, but he could talk art for days. And Sarah not only, you know, recognized where he's from, they had a lot of similarities. They both dropped out of high school. They both left Arkansas City. But she thought he had potential. And she set about to try and mold his confidence, saying, quote, we can all change, darling. The only thing he needed was just a boost of confidence. And she taught him that. So they got married in 1926 when they were both 30. Well, there is something to be said for the spirit of adventure, which seems to have come from Mama. 
They moved all the way to London a few years after their marriage, where Papa opened an art gallery within a high-end hotel on Bond Street. Their first child, Howard, was born the year they moved to England. So dual citizenship for the young gentleman. These expert networkers soon found themselves operating at the highest level of society. And it doesn't hurt that they were both too beautiful for words. Add in sophistication, money, and Midwestern friendliness. I am very sorry, Midwesterners. You know it's true. I have seen us at a four-way stop. <laughs> we can't help ourselves. You go. No, you. No, you go. I mean, like, ah. I'll tell you, I always thought I was outgoing and polite. And then I met you. And just watching you interact with strangers, I was like, we don't do it quite like that where I come from. But I like it. So I think I've adopted it a little bit. You're very friendly. Ah, thanks. That's all. Anyway, onward. Hee <laughs> Um, yeah, it didn't serve me well when we moved to Boston and I had to merge on the highway. I'm like, can somebody let me in? They're like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to let it's you not, in. Not. Not. <laughs> okay. But I will tell you that despite all their virtues, the big key to big doors opening for them was really a man named Victor Cazalet. And the way that his name is written, you would think it's Cazalet, but these British people are the ones that say Valet and Fillet. So you know his name is Cazalet. <laughs> he was a conservative MP who was friends with the likes of, oh, Winston Churchill, Prime Minister Anthony Eden, whose brother trained the Queen Mother's racehorses. This man's godmother is Queen Victoria. He runs in some circles. He was even godfather to Churchill's youngest daughter. That's how connected he is. He's he is the godfather of, godfather. He is the godfather of one of Churchill's kids and the godson of Queen Victoria. Oh my gosh. You don't get more connected than that even after you go to Eton and then on to Oxford and then become a member of parliament. It's not what you've done, it's who you are, seems like. <laughs> well, the close friendship began with art, of course. And um, here there's a what am I going to call it? A warm blanket of well-known facts with an embroidery of speculation. <laughs> <laughs> um, Victor Caslett and Papa May. And I am putting asterisks and little arrows in a circle around May because I am not asserting May have been boyfriends the whole time, which would go some way to explaining the extraordinary bond that Colonel Caslett had with the Taylor family. When Elizabeth was born in 1932, Victor Caslett was named her godfather, a role that he took very seriously. And, you know, she joined the likes of Winston Churchill's daughter. So I think it's really funny that right after she was born, Elizabeth was, and I quote, no great beauty. I mean, who cares? <laughs> who cares? Number one. But just in contrast to every single future encounter this woman will ever have in her whole entire life with anyone ever, I think it's interesting to note the initial dismay. Sarah said on her first meeting of her daughter, as the precious bundle was placed in my arms, my heart stood still. There, inside the cashmere shawl, was the funniest looking baby I had ever seen. Her hair was long and black. Her ears were covered with thick black fuzz and inlaid into the side of her head. Her nose looked like it tipped up button and her tiny face was so tightly closed it looked as if it would never unfold. She was born with a condition called hypertrichosis, which is also known as werewolf syndrome. The child was just covered in hair. She also, much to her benefit later, was born with a double row of eyelashes. Mm -hmm. So that's the beneficial hair. And then also with eyes of a curious shade of blue, which many called violet. I have to tell you, the number of times I have read in a book that someone had purple eyes just likes to kill me. Authors of America. <laughs> Chances are they're going to have brown eyes. And then I'll give you blue. But like not everyone has green, amber, or violet eyes. Just <laughs> statistically not not. Mm -mm. Uh. Colonel Caslett had an estate called Great Swifts in Kent, the um, lower right of England on a map. 
extensive grounds and a brand new to him manor house and an open invitation to his friends, the Taylors, who sort of intermittently and regularly occupied a, quote, gamekeeper's lodge on the grounds, which, ladies and gentlemen, is a 14-room house from the 16th century (laughs) called Little Swallows, lest we think they were roughing at their dining table seated 20, is what I'm saying. Just a little Newport-worthy cottage, darling. (laughs) But Victor was giving the Taylors a lot of things, including this place to live and whatever they asked for. He gave Frank a car once for no reason. But he was also giving his time to this family. He spent quite a bit of time with little baby Elizabeth, reading to her and playing with her and making sure she knew how to ride horses beginning with the pony that he gave her, which was named Betty, when she was three. So Elizabeth Taylor is learning to ride a horse at the age of three. This horse would later go on to be famous for throwing Prime Minister Anthony Eden right off of her back. Anthony Eden, a grown human man, and this small baby child just rode this horse bareback all over the estate. And as a matter of fact, (laughs) I didn't realize that a pony was not just a baby horse. I had no idea. Oh, This was an idyllic place to have a childhood. Elizabeth Taylor later described it as, quote, worthy of Walt Disney. Lush, lush cottage gardens with floral vines dripping everywhere and scents in the air. A backyard of forest, an outdoor stone fireplace. Birds were singing all the time. Um, Please move me in. (laughs) Howard and Elizabeth had pet rabbits, goats, lambs, chickens. You had to kind of tell Elizabeth that it was a shop chicken whenever you had chicken. chicken. Yeah, she was like, this isn't one of those chickens, right? And they'd be like, no, it is a shop chicken. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That one ran off. I don't know where they went. Mm. But in addition to this lush place to live, they were also surrounded by love of this family that was really a chosen family for the Taylors and for the Cazalettes, Victor's mother, as well as his sister, who in her own was pretty awesome. Her name was Thelma. She was also a member of parliament. She was a suffragist, then an actual feminist. And she wanted radical things like equal pay for teachers. Hmm. Crazy thought. Yeah. Elizabeth's early years were really in this protected bubble, not only of love of her own parents and this extended chosen family, but of their opulence, of their wealth, of their generosity. And because of all of that, the Taylors really were able to kind of cruise through the Depression unscathed. Well, now, they're not fighting the battles everyone else is fighting. This is actually not their only residence. They had a house in town with a private garden and a tennis court. So you can see we're <laughs> slumming it around here. <laughs> yeah, well, he's an art dealer and he's also still being funded by Uncle Howard right? whenever they needed it because he needed to maintain the whole family really did this um, level of societal acceptance and to be able to sell art to people within, you know, the aristocratic and the moneyed communities. So the family is in a good place. People used to stop Mama on the street and exclaim about the beauty of both of her children. As we shall see, that is a bit of a double-edged sword. It's almost a great burden from a very early age to be this attractive. But Sarah had a background in theater and performing, and she saw this beautiful child that she had and, of course, wanted maybe the best for her and the best in her mind would be a career in performing. So even if she didn't wasn't pushing her towards that end, it was very natural for little girls of this age to take dancing lessons, you know, to learn poise and composure. The dancing school that she chose was Madame Pauline Vacani's Dance School in London. It was also the dance school of Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret, who were six and two years older than our Elizabeth. Now, the princesses didn't go to the dance school and put on their leotards. They got taught at home, but it was the same umbrella. Mm Mm-hmm. And according to Elizabeth Taylor Cannon, legend has it that she was selected as a member of a troupe from Pauline Vacani's dance studio for a royal command performance before the royal family. 
Now, when biographers looked into it, yes, there was a performance, a kind of a recital, and the princesses royal would have been in attendance. However, there's also programs for it, and Elizabeth Taylor's name is not on it. So, Hmm. yeah. But hello, welcome to the Hollywood publicity machine. Right. So you're saying it's a little back backstory. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean... It's close enough to the truth, and it could possibly have happened, but there's no actual proof of it that survived. Right. Also, business is great. Friends are rich and famous. We may or may not know royalty in person. Everyone is living their best life, etc. But when Elizabeth was only six, Colonel Caslett came back from a lunch he just had with Winston Churchill, like you do, with some dire news. War was coming. Churchill had been shrieking with his proverbial megaphone about the dangers of Hitler and Nazi Germany in general. And so far, most people seem to be skipping around, ignoring him. La, 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 la. And he'd been one of the few people in power who supported the former king and Wallace Simpson. We talked about that during the abdication crisis. He's got a generally realistic and extraordinarily unpopular opinion. You know, take me seriously, said Winston Churchill. It is about to pop off around here. And so Colonel Caslett, who believed that Winston Churchill actually did see the future to some extent, warned the little family who packed up and moved to America, not to Ark City, if you're holding your breath, (laughs) but to an affluent area of Los Angeles. The plan was that Frank would open up yet another gallery, pretty much selling to the new up-and-coming industry of Hollywood movies. On their trip to the United States, it was Sarah, Elizabeth, and Howard on a ship. According to legend and Elizabeth Taylor Cannon again, there's a story that says she saw a movie, Shirley Temple's The Little Princess, while they were sailing to the United States, and that she decided then and there that she was going to become an actress. The truth is, it was probably the very farthest thing from her mind. She loved to be outdoors. She loved to play with her animals. Performing wasn't something that she enjoyed, despite her saying later in life about being on stage as a young child. She said, the marvelous moment, the isolation of hugeness, the feeling of space and no end to space, the lights, the music, then the applause bringing you back into focus, the noise rattling against your face. This is an older Elizabeth Taylor saying that that's what she was feeling at six, but it was not the case at all. More propaganda. Yeah, I'm saying that Mama's own ambitions by proxy cannot possibly be ruled out. And the mother-daughter team, once they hit L.A., was really on a quest to get Elizabeth into the movie business. But I do think it came from the top. No, no, no doubt. And I think that Sarah and Elizabeth... They, they loved each other. So, of course, Elizabeth is going to do what her mother wants. It was like um, an activity they could do together, stalking movie directors. Do you remember in the Harvey Girls, at least in the movie, where one of the characters says that her mother kept telling her as she was growing up, her face is her fortune? Mm-hmm. You know, everyone else is coming out to to work or be independent. And the, the mother of this one character has been telling her daughter all along, like, get married early because your face is your fortune and you can mm-hmm. snag a good one with the looks you got given. That's all you've got going for you. Mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of worried about, you know, it's kind of like a seize the day situation here, too. I don't know. That's just me talking. Well, you're. If you're walking down the street with your child and everyone's saying, get that child into movies, she looks mm. just like Vivian Lee. Mm. If that had been your aspiration as a younger person, it's the same situation with Shirley Temple and her mother. Mm-hmm. So behind every child actor, there's a mother, a stage mom. 
In fact, that was a big selling point to try to get her in the door of the movies. She looked so much like Vivian Lee, and it was known that they were going to cast Scarlett O'Hara's daughter that repeated efforts were made to unseat the little child who'd already gotten the part and place this unknown newcomer into that seat. And you really cannot deny that they look so much like each other. In fact, the whole Cleopatra thing later is tickling me because they both play <laughs> Cleopatra, you know. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but yeah, undeniably, a young Elizabeth Taylor could have played that part, but nobody was willing to just, you know, rearrange all the deck chairs to make room for this one little girl. And I don't think she ever 100% got over that. <laughs> Rejection. <laughs> but Colonel Caslett, no, you know, don't fret. Colonel Caslett had contacts here too. His reach is international, and soon Elizabeth found herself auditioning for two movie studios, Universal and MGM. And she got offers from both of them. Mother weighed her options and chose Universal. And at the age of nine, Elizabeth Taylor joined the famous studio system. She was given a contract for five months for $100 a week, which is just under 2000 in modern day dollars, which isn't too shabby. Sarah got 10% of that as her, quote, manager. So she had to be with Elizabeth, you know, whenever she was on set and she was her manager. Elizabeth's first movie is There's One Born Every Minute. Also featuring Carl Switzer, better known as Alfalfa from Little Rascals, who taught her every curse word he knew, which is handy because Elizabeth Taylor, one thing she's known for is her absolutely filthy vocabulary. And so as this is a G-rated podcast, we are not going to be quoting a lot of Elizabeth Taylor herself. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alfalfa, for that. Um, but I have to tell you, this movie is like, hold your nose. I mean, watch it if you want to. I'm not here to stop you. But here's here is the summary. Chaos descends upon a pudding manufacturer's family after lab results uncover the astounding nutritional value of one of his products. Like, y'all, y'all, it is bad, bad. <laughs> bad. And Elizabeth's role was as a very obnoxious kid. She said later she just ran around slinging rubber bands at fat ladies' bottoms. So it wasn't exactly like she wasn't typecast. She didn't have a type yet, but even if, you know, it was casting to her personality, this was not it at all. Well, even uh, the studio saw that, did not see any potential in their young new hire, and they abruptly canceled her contract the guy that did it said, and I quote, that kid has nothing. She's got old eyes. She doesn't even look like a child at all. And I'm here to tell you, if you watch that movie, she does have eyes that look straight at the camera, um, mm -hmm. which you're not really supposed to do. And Mama, seeing the way the wind was blowing on this, developed some hand signals that she could use with Elizabeth as she was acting. They kind of gave direction. You know, it's not like she could be mom in the back of the theater. Sing out, baby. You know, no. On a movie theater, you got to be quiet. So she developed a lot of sign language. All I could think of when I when I first read that quote, you know, she doesn't have the face of a kid. You know, the casting director is getting rid of her. And I'm thinking of that line from Pretty Women. Big mistake. Big. Huge. Also set in Beverly Hills. <laughs> but MGM came calling and said, hey, are you free right now? They had a pressing and extremely specific need for a film that was largely already done and in the can. They needed a young girl with an English accent who could ride a horse. Checkity check. Elizabeth joined the cast of Lassie Come Home as uh, the granddaughter of the man who ended up with Lassie. Her performance in Lassie Come Home landed her a seven-year contract. Welcome back to the studio system. And she began to attend school on the MGM lot. She had to take dancing and singing lessons at night. The studio controlled her hairstyle, her clothes, her schedule, her image. She later called it a factory. Like she worked in an entertainment factory. She did make a few more movies, small parts. Um, she has an uncredited role in Jane Eyre as Helen Burns, which in the book is a pretty critical character. Um, remember Jane Eyre's little friend who had died at school? 
Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? That's Elizabeth Taylor. And for some reason, she went uncredited. That's a pretty pivotal moment in Jane Eyre's life. But I think she only had like three minutes of screen time, like yeah. that character. That's when they rewrote it. Mm. But it was when she was 12 that Elizabeth Taylor was catapulted to stardom. Sarah and Elizabeth got word that they were casting for a movie about a preteen girl who dresses like a boy to ride a horse that only she can control, a British girl. So she's going to need a British accent, all based on the 1935 book National Velvet. National Velvet was a book. It was a bestseller written by Enid Bagnold. And the story itself had been bouncing from studio to studio. RKO wanted it for Katherine Hepburn. Then they wanted it for Jean Tierney. Paramount got their hands on it finally and were having a hard time casting it. But the production chief at Paramount, who had his hands on the rights to the story, switched jobs and he went to MGM. And MGM was able to cast 23-year-old Mickey Rooney. He was a big box office draw at the time as the wandering former jockey Mai. But Velvet Brown, the main character, the girl, had yet to be cast. They were looking all over. They needed a tween with a British accent. Who could ride a horse. Elizabeth claims it was her favorite book. And the two of them are stalking the director around town, trying to get Elizabeth in front of a camera to audition for this role because they believe this is absolutely her. But it was determined that she was just a little too small for the role. The girl that they had in mind was was a little bit older. <laughs> According to, I'm going to say this so much. According to Lore, Elizabeth willed herself to grow, that she ate high carbs and lots of proteins. She was at the pool exercising every day. Or, you know, maybe her hormones kicked in and she grew a few inches in three months and strutted herself into the casting office and finally landed the part. She had an intense series of sort of prop riding, like she had to get used to the horse that they were going to use. And I am sorry to say that Elizabeth Taylor said this was the only time during her entirety at MGM that she felt like a human being. And I quote, the only time I had for myself was when I could get on my horse in the morning before going to the studio. I would jump for about an hour and I felt the freedom, like my spirit was at one with the trees and the sky and the wind and I could scream or cry or feel whatever I wanted to. Nobody could hear me and nobody could tell me to shut up. And then I would have to go to work and be the puppet. So what Susan said earlier about like the ambition of Elizabeth Taylor, you know, according to lore as a child, not matching what we know of her love of the outdoors and of animals and freedom is really Mm -hmm. kind of coming true here in this quote. And, um, you know, she's only 12 and she's already kind of in the middle of, quote, a factory. She's at work. Mm. She may have known how to ride a horse, but she didn't know how to make eggs, which is part of one of the scenes that she was instructed to make breakfast and make the eggs. And Elizabeth didn't cook and Sarah certainly didn't cook. So you could even see her in the movie, like trying to whip the eggs and failing miserably. But the horseback riding, that was her. That was all her. Even the stunts. Wow. Why would they let her do that? I don't know, especially since one of the stunts has her falling off the horse and the injury to her back in real life was going to haunt her for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm in pain and and surgeries. Hmm. So National Velvet, in case you've never read it, it's about a young English girl who wins a horse in a raffle and trains him to win a big race. So it was a beloved story. And the marketing was so vanilla that I am cracking up. And the Mad Men people, I can see why they were such big hits because these are the words of the trailer. It has been a mighty long time since you've seen a better picture the National Velvet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In a world where all you see is terrible movies, you're going to see National Velvet. Well, Elizabeth Taylor was a natural. She's beautiful and determined and charming. She basically played herself in this movie. I am I am sorry to tell you that there might have been both casting shenanigans. She's 12. That's as far as I'm going with that. And... A situation or two with adult co-stars. This is the bad side of being so attractive and having such a mature looking outward appearance. 
I think that's as far as I'm willing to go. Just at 12, she already looked 18. And I, I don't think anyone was looking out for her, really. I think ambition got a little in the way. Remember, we said this, 12-year-old Shirley Temple was being shown the movie executive's personal situation. And she only got out of it by laughing hysterically and got kicked out of the office. And that was MGM. Mm -hmm. Um, And let me quote Elizabeth Taylor here. More and more, the movie business seemed to be populated by overzealous Tomcats. But the movie was a hit. Uh, The movie made her a star. The movie made her a household name. There was, however, not a lot on deck for this otherworldly-looking beautiful child as a child. And so the studio sort of had to keep her name in the public eye, and they had an interesting strategy. Elizabeth had written an essay and illustrated it for a school assignment, and the publicity department got their hands on it, and they're like, this is a book. This is a book by Elizabeth Taylor. Let's print it. The book is called Nibbles and Me. It was published when she was about 14. It's about the antics of her pet chipmunks, two of them both named Nibbles, (laughs) (laughs) which is cute. By 15, I think they were more like, you know, full-on adult mode activated. She was cast in two movies a year during these early years. She really escaped the awkward stage. Some people just do, dang her. And Uh we are certainly not going to be able to go movie by movie. But highlights from this era include Little Women, which I'm sorry, Elizabeth Taylor, you are by no means my favorite Amy. Um, My favorite Amy is actually Kirsten Dunst. Oh, yeah. No, I I support that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who, unfortunately, didn't also play the older Amy. Man, was she good as a little kid, wasn't she? She was also so good in Interview with the Vampire. The only person yeah. on earth to be 100% disgusted at having to kiss Brad Pitt, by the way. So there's a distinction for you. <laughs> the former star of National Velvet has been touched by MGM's magic wand, turned into this real siren with a whole new career in front of her, I think. She got over a thousand invitations to college dances in her early teens. An admirer gave her a baby lion (laughs) and she was allowed to keep it for a little bit. And then the lion started chewing up an outfit and the mom's like, we had to take this to the dry cleaner because it's stained up everything. And they took it to the dry cleaner. What is this lion saliva? And he threw up his hands like, I literally don't know what to do for you. <laughs> and they had to give the lion away because it was clawing the curtains and otherwise just being a lion in a house, you know. <laughs> Did we mention she likes her animals and her pets? <laughs> I love it. She had her very first Life magazine cover at the age of 15. She would have um, ultimately 14 covers, but they called her, quote, Hollywood's most accomplished actress. At age 15. Mm. And there was a group of Hollywood cameramen who labeled her, quote, the most beautiful woman ever photographed. And Elizabeth's reaction to that was, did you hear that, mother? They called me a woman. Well, the PR machine was on full speed. So I don't know if she was taking that on board. Um, You know, they marketed her as the glamorous teen. They actually equated her with Ava Gardner, Lana Turner. There is a ridiculous photo of Elizabeth Taylor and her tutor, this fully glammed up woman figure on the left who is 16 and by law has to be tutored on set, which she hated because it was embarrassing. And then to the right, this teacher is trying to teach her something. It's it's like, am I a grown up or am I not? You guys should pick. You know, they arranged dates for her. They arranged careful photo shoots. They made her into an aspirational figure for teen girls to wish to be all over the world. They even made it look like she loved school, which honestly, she spent very little time in. And they staged her high school graduation. You'll see photos of her with a cap and gown and a diploma getting a, a degree from a city high school when in reality the whole thing was staged the kids around her they didn't go to school with her hmm. it's a state i just i mean your graduation photo is a staged photo well that seems to be a theme as we shall shortly mm-hmm. see that her life was generally stage managed she okay. her dates were organized by the studio some carefully chosen photogenic gentlemen to escort her places on camera She was engaged twice in her mid-teens 
once to a football player and once to a millionaire named Bill Polly. And she met Conrad Hilton Jr. when she was only 17, dancing at a nightclub called the Mocambo. And yes, my friends, those Hiltons. Yes. (laughs) And then she starred in Father of the Bride. And the studio could not believe their luck when Elizabeth got engaged to Conrad Hilton. Her wedding would be the best press ever for the movie Father of the Bride. I mean, they must have raised their hands and eyes to the skies, saying their thank yous to the gods of movie serendipity, because it (laughs) was on. Let us handle this, they said. Set designers were called in to do their thing. Designer Helen Rose made the dress. MGM company actors under contract, quote, played the groomsmen and bridesmaids. That dress, it was almost an exact duplicate of the dress that she wears in Father of the Bride because it was designed and made by the same person. The engagement ring cost over $100,000, which is chump change for Liz, as we shall see, but impressive for this first foray into Serious Rocks TM. (laughs) It was the wedding of the year. It was the wedding of the year, but just like the wedding of the year, Her marriage was a facade. Elizabeth found out very quickly exactly who she married and why this was not the marriage of her dreams. On her honeymoon, where she brought 17 suitcases and a maid, her husband, Nikki Hilton, was off gambling and carousing and drinking the whole time. Even on their wedding night, he left her alone just laying there in her peignoir waiting for her groom, who never showed up. Side note. I'm sorry, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm going to take a break. Do we still have penoirs? Do we still have them? I'm thinking I need some for the summer. (laughs) I don't know. Where does one get a penoir? I mean, obviously vintage stores. Mm. Yeah. I would say um, Amazon, but that's probably a (laughs) bad. If caftans can come back, I am holding the flag for penoirs. Yes. Well, after the Etsy strike is over, go find an independent creator to make you that penoir set and you'll love it. (laughs) Back to the sad reality. Elizabeth Taylor's new husband had substance abuse problems, definite gambling problems, as Susan said, and possibly a propensity for domestic violence. They started fighting on the honeymoon and pretty much didn't stop. And just over 200 days after saying I do, Elizabeth Taylor filed for divorce. And I shudder to think what would have happened if I married the boyfriend I had at 18. Oh, good Lord. I know, right? I mean, I did get married young, Though I wasn't pressurized by an international movie conglomerate to do so. Well, yeah. After that first divorce, she said, I've been able to wear plunging necklines since I was 14 years old. And ever since then, people have expected me to act as old as I look. My troubles all started because I have a woman's body and a child's emotions. That's 18-year-old Elizabeth Taylor talking, recognizing the situation, you know, knowing who she is. At this age, she got boxed into a most beautiful girl in the room early, very early, and she was too young to handle it. And just there wasn't any strong hand on the tiller. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Lindsay Lohan, but in her case, it was more like she was talented at an early age and and no one helped her. Mm hmm. So back to her work life real quick. She's still under contract to MGM and was cast in 12 films in the next five years. Mostly sort of, oh, hey, they changed the movie down at the picture show. Maybe we should head over there kind of thing. They were called programmers and they were churned out just for that reason to fill space 
And so a lot of these were like, okay, go, okay, go. Minimal editing, um, fast out, you know. She kept getting cast as a, a type, a rich, privileged girl, and was described as gliding like a swan through a world of silver coffee service and discreet servants. One director described her as she's not so much a real girl as that beautiful girl in the yellow Cadillac that every American boy sometime or other thinks that he can marry. She's literally a commodity. She's a type. She's a cartoon character. And her acting style, if it could be called that, isn't really acting. She's, like you said, kind of just being herself, but the camera absolutely loves her. So she doesn't have to put any effort into it until she stars in a movie with her soon-to-be really good friend, Montgomery Clift. The movie's called A Place in the Sun, and of course the publicity department needed to put them out in public to be photographed together. So they were each other's dates to an awards ceremony. And um, Montgomery Clift was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have to go with her. But the two decided that they were going to skip out and go get hamburgers on their way to this event. And they kind of bonded over this, you know, oh, she's a real person. Oh, he's a real person. And what Montgomery Clift did for her was to show her method acting, that she had to become the character she was playing to expand herself as an actress. And she said, my God, it isn't all about having fun. So this is actually her beginning of her of her learning how to actually act. Even though she's been in all of these movies, she's an international superstar. She is finally learning how to act. Thank you, Montgomery Clift. So they developed a very close actory bond the way that you only do when you're on a project with somebody. Monty, she would call him. I would never dare to call Montgomery Cliff Monty, but she did. Monty, oh, Monty. Well, she was having a party and, and she kept pressurizing him to come to her party. And he's like, no, I'm tired. I'm not coming. Please, come on. Please, please. It won't be a party without you. Blah, 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 blah. We all have a friend like that. So finally, he's like, fine. And comes to her party. And on the way home, he gets in a horrific, horrific car accident within earshot of Elizabeth Taylor's house. You know, before the emergency services are there, she actually, this is so gross, brace yourself for this, Mm -hmm. saves him from choking to death on his own bashed out teeth by reaching her hand into his throat and pulling them out. His face was never the same and they hadn't finished filming And when the movie came out, I'm sorry to say that the audience was drawn as much by the tragedy as the content of the movie. And everyone was trying to guess what scenes were filmed pre-accident and what scenes were filmed post-accident. And there was, um, there would probably have been a Reddit thread had that existed, but it was a big topic of conversation. Mm, And he never got another romantic lead for the rest of his career. And uh, Elizabeth Taylor felt, of course, as one does, enormously guilty about that. So thanks to Montgomery Clift and his impromptu and thorough acting lessons, however, the newly hatched real actress, that's TM, (laughs) for the second time, (laughs) has been cast in a serious production. This is a retelling of Sir Walter Scott's epic Ivanhoe. Um... To condense Ivanhoe, what shall I say? It's Normans and Saxons. It's the 12th century. Um, this is not her usual vehicle, you know. Now, Elizabeth, never that literary to begin with, did not have a lot of nice things to say about her role in Ivanhoe, even though Rebecca, her role, was the main character. And I have to say, I don't love Ivanhoe either. What I do like is the sequel that didn't come out until 1850, 1860, written by William Makepeace Thackeray, the same guy that wrote Vanity Fair. It's a fanfic sequel called Rebecca and Rowena. If you liked Vanity Fair, you would like that one better. So feel free to go there. And there's another literary connection in Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. The main character's name is Rebecca Rowena Randall because, and I quote, Papa was a fan of Ivanhoe. So, you know, Ivanhoe 
is a big cultural phenomenon that a lot of people are familiar with, just not Elizabeth Taylor. And so she got, she thought, nothing out of this production at all. But there is one major thing that did come out of this filming. She got a new leading man in her life, British actor Michael Wilding. Michael Charles Gauntlet Wilding. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I, I shortened it to Michael Wilding. So <laughs> there you go. I think the most important thing to know about Michael Wilding is that he wasn't Hilton. He was the exact opposite, the antithesis of Nikki Hilton. He was mild and British and proper. He was, you know, significantly older than her. and. He was also married. He had gotten married when Elizabeth Taylor was only five, and he was still married to the same woman. But we're starting to find out what Elizabeth wants, Elizabeth gets, and they're dating. She goes back to California. He flies out for a visit, and their whole romance is fast-tracked because he's finally divorced. One night at dinner, he gave her a sapphire and diamond promise ring, which she immediately put on the ring finger of her left hand, saying, this is where it belongs, and literally proposing to him right then and there. She's 20. <laughs> She's doing this. She said later that my mother says I didn't even open my eyes for eight days after I was born. But when I did, the first thing I saw was her engagement ring, and I was hooked. So I think of this as like her first uh, diamond of note. And it was a ring he got for her, but she used it to propose to herself. <laughs> you know, I think it's also kind of funny how this the scale of everything is cracking me up because like everyone 100% dismisses the $100,000 engagement ring that Nikki Hilton gave her because the things that came <laughs> after <laughs> are of such a grand scale right, that it's right. like, maybe that's oh, why. Yeah. Did you just chump change me with this Cracker Jack 100K out of the box? It just makes me laugh. Like when you start working at a fancy boutique and you're suddenly like $349 does sound like a good price for a skirt. Like you get messed up. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, she's making money as an actress, but she also got money in her divorce from Nikki Hilton. She got stocks and money and that ring. So she's an extraordinarily wealthy woman at this point. And oh, yes, she's 20. Mm -hmm. But I guess so you know what like those YouTube stars now and the TikTok stars, those influencers who are teenagers that are worth multiple millions of dollars. I guess, you know, she was the lead on that in a mm -hmm. way. So just over a year after her divorce from Mr. Hilton, Elizabeth married her beau in a quiet ceremony in London. And this relationship seemed to be almost suburban in its respectability. It was calm. It was quiet. There was the security of friendship. Uh, Elizabeth had two sons named Michael and Christopher, which I was going to look up on Baby Name Wizard, fully, fully expecting to see both of those names number one in the year that they were born. But I have discovered that it was taken down last year. R.I.P. Baby Name Wizard. I loved you so. It's gone. Oh, that's too bad. We looked at it quite a bit. So despite the quiet respectability, there was, in fact, tension. Mr. Wilding's career seemed to have peaked. He had been in the business for decades. He had started with set design and moved on to acting. And the 1940s had been a banner decade for him career-wise. So when he and Elizabeth Taylor had met on the set of Ivanhoe, he was one of the biggest stars in, in Britain. But uh, his wife's star was on the rise and his was on the wane. And that's a hard place to be. And that was a source of just increasing distance in their relationship. The film that firmly established her as an adult superstar was the 1956 movie Giant, starring Rock Hudson and James Dean. If you have ever seen the play, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, this is the movie that some of the cast of that play was hoping to get cast in. Does that make sense? Like mm -hmm. yeah, that play takes place while the filming of this movie was happening. And if you have not yet seen the movie Giant... Um, it's very long, so budget some time if you're going to watch it. It's one of those things that you 
might want to have in your repertoire, you know, if you're talking about movies. For one thing, it seems to be the place that people got that sweeping evening epic soap opera called Dallas. Like a long saga about a multi-generational oil-rich family in Texas um, kind of had its little birth in the movie Giant. Interesting. The character of Jet Rink, by the way, is not where I got my son's name. <laughs> Though I would not be surprised to learn that the man he's named after might have been named after Jet Rink. Oh. <laughs> Although I can't ask him because he's no longer with us. But anyway, there was a weird three-way bond between the three stars. They were thrown together a lot because the director thought for authenticity, he needed to film in Marfa, Texas, which is the middle of nowhere. The bad thing is that Jimmy Dean and Rock Hudson seem to be competing for Elizabeth Taylor's attention at all times. And it's hilarious to me that it doesn't seem to be romantic, if you know what I mean. It's like my cats. Like, no, attention me. <laughs> at all times. She used to drink vodka and eat chocolate while lounging with Rock Hudson. And she would drink <laughs> tequila with James Dean and talk about real stories about his tumultuous childhood. She had a very strong emotional bond with both of them. But the two men could largely sort of not stand each other. The um, Rock Hudson Elizabeth Taylor School of Acting thanks to Montgomery Clift, was very serious and they involved themselves in the inner lives of their characters. And James Dean had a very modern approach where it's like, well, I'm going to show up and see what happens. And they like hated that. You know, it was very stressful for them, <laughs> um, the newly minted method actress. Um, so anyway, the set was, you know, emotionally charged and um, interesting and to alleviate some of the boredom, the director gave each one of his stars a car so they could get away. It wasn't like you could just jump on public transit and get anywhere. There really wasn't anywhere. The only real entertainment was to drive. And James Dean got his car taken away because he could not handle the speed. So he was forced to ride with either Rock Hudson or Elizabeth Taylor anytime he wanted to go somewhere. <laughs> I think that's funny. That's like one of those little nuggets, like the fact that Marvel doesn't tell Tom Holland anything anymore. Yeah. Like right. he's not allowed to see the scripts anymore because he can't right. handle the scripts. Like James Dean can't handle the cars. And I'm Yo. sorry to say that actually transcends into his reality. Well, James Dean loved cars. He loved speed and had wrapped his part on Giant. And he was off living his best life with his movie star money. He was driving his brand new Porsche Spider to a race in California when he died in a horrible, horrible car crash. He was only 24. He died on a Friday. Everyone was told and everyone had to be back on set. They had to continue filming on Saturday. Everyone else still had scenes to do and they did try. But Rock Hudson was distraught. And if he was distraught, knowing that he didn't even really like that guy that much, Elizabeth Taylor broke apart. So this was the second car accident that was very traumatic for Elizabeth. These two men, both Montgomery Clift and James Dean, they were like her work boyfriends almost. They were very close. And these accidents happened very close together in time, too. So she didn't have time to recuperate from one before the next one happened. That's a lot on a person. And she's still filming her movie. And word is she was during the entire filming of Giant suffering from what would now be diagnosed as postpartum depression after the birth of her second child. So she was holding a lot of stuff inside and holding it together. If you were to see that movie, you would never know, you know, and some of the scenes that don't involve James Dean may in fact have been filmed by her after his death. So she had a trauma response. She had to take a couple of weeks off and she came back like a pro and knocked out the rest of the scenes. Giant, the movie, was released after a year to amazing box office success. Both Rock Hudson and James Dean were nominated for Best Actor. The director won an Oscar. Both Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson were invited to put their handprints on the sidewalk outside of Grauman's Chinese Theater. And I wrote, concrete 
evidence of stardom. <laughs> Ouch. Well, it was the making of Rock Hudson as a star, that movie, and definitely firmly cemented. Here's another one. And I oh, actually, God, that, no. <laughs> I guarantee you that one I didn't mean, but there it is. Cemented <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor as a major, major movie star and made James Dean a legend. I'm afraid this might be the best time to stop. We had no idea that we were going to be so excited about things. And, and there's a lot to say and there's a lot going on and a lot of names to drop, etc. And um, she's only in her early 20s at this point. And I'm on, usually when we do two-parters, we know that they're going to be two-parters. This one, I thought I'd condensed her life, but I didn't. <laughs> I guess, because I'm not even a third of the way through the outline I have. So we will leave you here and we will pick up with, oh my goodness, more stories of romance and jewelry and old Hollywood and <laughs> perfume and pandemics. We have got a lot of ground to cover. So we are going to put media in the second section, but if you would like to do a little homework between shows, we recommend that you watch National Velvet and Father of the Bride and Giant. I think that's a good overview of her career up to this point. National Velvet you can find on HBO Max streaming or it's available on Apple TV. Father of the Bride, you can rent it on Apple TV if you can't find it on Canopy, which is an app that you use through your library. That's and, spelled K-A-N-O-P-Y. Yeah. And Giant is only rentable. You can find it on Apple TV or Amazon Prime or Voodoo. And again, maybe you can find it on Canopy through your library. So until next time, thanks for listening. Bye. If you like what you heard today, please tell a friend or leave us a review on whatever podcatcher you're listening to right now. You can meet up with us on our social media sites. Both Beckett and I are in our private Facebook group, the History Chicks Podcast Lounge. Beckett is the one that controls Instagram, and I am mostly the one on Twitter. There's just a few openings left. To join us as we travel to Boston and Newport, we visit sites of women that we've just been talking about on this show. Lizzie Borden, Louise and Bay Alcott, and oh, those Newport cottages, and so much more. There's information at Like Minds Travel. We'll put a link in the show notes for this episode. And that's where you can sign up as well. We would love to see you there. If you are in the Boston area, there is a Locals Meetup dinner cruise on October 21st. And we are going to be in London. Is this really happening? In June of this year. The trip is full. But if you're in the area, please join us for the Locals Meetup in London on June 25th. Information for both of those is also on Like Minds Travel, which you can get to through the link we'll put in the show notes for this episode. And one more thing, we do have a new merch shop. You can access it on our website, thehistorychicks.com, which is where we have all of our show notes and all of our media recommendations. And I'm jumping in uh, to once again direct you to the Pinterest page, which <laughs> the Elizabeth Taylor board is one of the easiest I've ever put together, I would say comparable only to Audrey Hepburn in the ease of finding material for. The song at the end is Mercurial Girl by Five Star Fall. To me, it seems to go along with that concept of Elizabeth Taylor having been every American boy's fantasy of the girl in the yellow convertible. Um, very sort of superficial from their side um, not seeing Elizabeth Taylor as a real person. There she goes, there she goes, she's on mission control. There she hovered around in her own little world. Let she spin, let she spin, let she spin all around me. She's my low, she's my high, I'm staring outside.
waiting for her to come back what? you're not there la 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 keep talking uh, thank you okay yeah, seriously you am i doing that am i, I was, like dropping out at all yes okay you I, just dropped out i sang you a oh, whole song okay. maybe you'll hear it on the recording 